Yes, the reading is from Haggai, and uh, on in the Church Bible, it's page 948, and uh, it's the third to last book before the end of the Old Testament. When you get to the the uh, separation of two testaments, turn back a couple of books. In the second year of King Darius, on the first day of the sixth month, the word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai to Zerubbabel, son of Shalaltiel, governor of Judea, and to Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. And this is what the Lord Almighty says. These people say, the time has not yet come for the Lord's house to be built. Then the word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai. Is it time for you, yourselves, to be living in your panelled houses while this house remains a ruin? Now this is what the Lord Almighty says. Give careful thought to your ways. You have planted much, but you have harvested little. You eat, but never have enough. You drink, but never have your fill. You put on clothes, but are not warm. You earn wages only to put them in a purse with holes in it. This is what the Lord Almighty says. Give careful thought to your ways. Go up into the mountains and bring timber and build the house so that I may take pleasure in it and be honoured, says the Lord. You expected much, but see it turned out to be little. What you brought home, I blew away. Why? declares the Lord Almighty. Because of my house, which remains in ruins, while each of you is busy with your own house. Therefore, because of you, the heavens have withheld their dew, and the earth its crops. I called for a drought on the fields and the mountains, on the grain, the new wine, the oil, and whatever the ground produces, on men and cattle, and on the labour of your lands. Then Zerubbabel, son of Shetel, Joshua, son of Zehozadak, the high priest, and the whole remnant of the people obeyed the voice of the Lord, their God, and the message of the prophet Haggai, because the Lord their God had sent him, and the people feared the Lord. Then Haggai, the Lord's messenger, gave this message to the, of the Lord to the people. I am with you, declares the Lord. So the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, son of Sheatel, governor of Judea, and the spirit of Joshua, son 
of Jehoshadah, the high priest, and the spirit of the whole remnant of the people. And they came and began work on the house of the Lord Almighty their God. On the 24th day of the sixth month, in the second year of King Darius. Thank you, David. Thank you, Nathan. Let's pray before we look at God's word. Father God in heaven, we pray tonight that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts will be acceptable and pleasing to you this evening, Father. We pray that you would work in us what is pleasing to you, for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this evening's text is Haggai chapter 1. Well, home improvement is big business. Apparently, British consumers spent £110.3 billion on home improvements during 2020, according to one survey. That's more than the UK's annual defence budget, more than the education budget, and it's not far off the annual NHS budget. And again, apparently that figure is 10 times more than giving to charity in the UK in the same year. And of course, there isn't anything necessarily wrong with home improvements. Homes are good gifts from our good God. They're things to be thankful for. They're things to be used. They're things to be looked after. But home comes or homes come with dangers. In fact, any material blessings come with potential dangers. What we spend on our homes can reveal our priorities. Our spending can reveal the state of our hearts. Our spending can reveal the truth that we prioritize building our own homes over building God's kingdom. It can show that we can value comfort and luxury over sacrifice and labor for the kingdom of God. It can reveal that we sometimes value our pleasure and our glory over God's pleasure and God's glory. The Lord Jesus Christ said, do not store up treasures, sorry, do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moths and vermin destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moths and vermin do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Matthew six nineteen to 21 So spending time, spending money on homes or on any material thing can show that our hearts are tied to this world, not to God's kingdom. Well, this evening we're starting a two-part series on the Old Testament prophecy of Haggai. Haggai chapter 1 this week, and then Haggai chapter 2 next week with Colin. And Haggai chapter 1 challenges God's Old Testament people about their priorities. And I trust this evening it's going to challenge our priorities too as the Lord's New Testament people, as the church. So four points for us this evening to help us through the text. We've got the setting, the sin, the sentence, 
and the solution. The setting, the sin, the sentence, and the solution. So first of all then, the setting. The setting of Haggai chapter 1. God's people, the Jews, had been exiled to Babylon. King Nebuchadnezzar had sent his armies to attack Jerusalem. Jerusalem had been destroyed. And the Babylonians had plundered the valuable articles from the the temple. The Babylonians had set fire to the temple. temple, They destroyed the temple. And King Nebuchadnezzar had taken off many Jews into exile in Babylon. And the Lord had allowed this to happen to punish Judah. He allowed it to happen to punish Judah for her idolatry, for her disobedience. The Lord took the Jews into exile just as he had promised he would if they continued to be faithless towards him. And that's what had happened. And yet before these events, the Lord had also graciously promised that one day he would bring the Jews back from exile. He'd promised this through the prophet Jeremiah. Some of you remember that the the Lord revealed to Jeremiah that after 70 years of exile, there would be a return to Jerusalem. We see that in Jeremiah chapter 29. And then the Lord had made promises through the prophet Isaiah along these lines as well. In fact, Isaiah had prophesied that one day someone called Cyrus would be responsible for rebuilding Jerusalem and the temple. And then, incredibly, about 150 years after Isaiah's prophecy, the prophecy came true. It came to pass. Onto the world stage came a Cyrus, King Cyrus. Now, Cyrus was a Persian. He'd become the ruler of what had been the Babylonian Empire. And Cyrus, as the Babylonian emperor, had a change of policy. You might have noticed that governments do that from time to time. In God's providence, Cyrus allowed a number of the Jews to return from Babylon to Jerusalem. Cyrus had allowed them and even encouraged them to rebuild the temple upon their arrival in Jerusalem. And in 538, 538 BC, around 50,000 Jews returned to Jerusalem under the leadership of Zerubbabel. And you can read more about these events in Ezra chapters 1 and 2. And these Jews began to rebuild the temple, probably in 536 BC, a couple of years after they'd returned. And we can read more about that in Ezra chapter 3. So this great work of rebuilding the temple had recommenced, had started. But then the rebuilding of the temple stalled. We read in Ezra chapter 4 that there was local opposition to the rebuilding of the temple. Some of the people surrounding Jerusalem objected to the work that was going on. And the work came to an end before the temple had been completed. The symbol of God's presence with his people lay unfinished. The center of Israel's worship, the center of Israel's religious life lay incomplete. Here was this temple, this building that was designed to reveal something of God's glory to the world. And it was anything but glorious. And so the Lord acted. And we see this in verse 1. 
In the second year of King Darius, on the first day of the sixth month, the word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai to Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, son of Josadak, the high priest. So in his goodness, in his mercy, the Lord raised up a prophet, this man called Haggai, to bring his word to the people of Jerusalem. He raises up Haggai to address this situation. Another king was on the throne in Babylon by this time. History tells us that this king was Darius. God's word tells us it was a Darius. History knows him as Darius Histas. Try that one again. Histaspes. Um, and he was king. He's not to be confused with King Darius the Mede in Daniel chapter 6. Not going to give you a history lesson now of this post-exilic period. More, more uh, information can be found on the internet, but it can get quite confusing with a number of kings around with similar names. But Haggai was raised up during this Darius's second year as king. This is probably 520 BC, about 16 years after the temple rebuild had started and then had stalled. And Haggai brought a message from the Lord to his people in Jerusalem. He brought a message to the leaders of Judah, to Zerubbabel, the governor, and to Joshua, the high priest. And we don't know much about Haggai. We don't know much about his family. We don't know much about his biography. In the book of Ezra, he's mentioned twice, very briefly. And other than that, we know nothing about him. But overall, that doesn't matter because what matters is Haggai's message, not the messenger. What matters is the word of the Lord, not the bringer of God's word per se. So Haggai was sent by the Lord to bring his word. And it was a word that was to convict the people of their sin and to lead them to repentance, to stir them up, as we will see. So number two, the sin. That was the setting. This is the sin, number two. The message that Haggai was to bring to the people of Jerusalem was a relatively straightforward one. He, he said to them, you are sinning, and instead of sinning, you must obey the Lord. Well, what was the sin of the people? The people's sin was this. The people of Jerusalem were prioritizing the building of their own homes over the rebuilding of of the temple verses 2 to 4 this is what the lord almighty says these people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the lord's house then the word of the lord came through the prophet haggai is it a time for you yourselves to be living in your paneled houses while this house remains a ruin so the people of jerusalem were living in paneled houses they were living in ornate houses, lavishly decorated houses, luxurious houses. In that context, to have such a house, a luxurious house, meant it was probably embellished with costly cedar wood ceilings and walls. But their homes seemed to be decked out to the highest contemporary standards. And they did this, their homes were like this, whilst the temple, God's house, lay in ruins. Having homes was not the problem. Having extravagant homes was the problem, especially as the temple lay incomplete. 
These people were too busy with their own homes to worry about the temple. Verse 9. They tried making excuses. The time has not yet come to rebuild the Lord's house, they said. We're not told in Haggai why they claimed that that time was not the right time to rebuild the temple. We're not told whether it was the political situation or the economic situation. And yet their excuses, whatever they were, did not wash with the Lord. These people had wrong priorities. Their priorities were comfort, ease and luxury. Their priorities were centered on self. They were being consumed by their homes. But actually their homes were not their biggest problem. Their panelled homes are evidence of a bigger problem of a greater sin. Because their biggest problem was their hearts. We can see this in verse 8. Have a look at verse 8 where the Lord says this. He says, Go up into the mountains and bring down timber and build my house so that I may take pleasure in it and be honoured, says the Lord. The real issue wasn't houses and homes and wooden panelling. The real issue, according to this verse, was the matter of God's pleasure or God's honour or glory. See, this ruined temple brought God displeasure and dishonour, but a completed temple would bring God pleasure and glory. I think the Lord is inferring this there. If the Lord's pleasure and glory had mattered to the Jews, they would have prioritised their rebuilding of the temple. In other words, the temple stood unfinished because God's people did not value highly enough God's pleasure and God's glory. These people had what we might say a selfish indifference to the Lord. They prioritised self over the Lord. They were neglecting the Lord's pleasure and the Lord's glory and they were neglecting it for ease and comfort, for luxury and their own pleasure. And these were sins that were to be repented of. So here it's relatively straightforward, I think, for us to make application of this principle to ourselves. Let me challenge us this evening. Do we prioritize our Lord's pleasure and our Lord's glory or do we prioritize our own? Do we prioritize kingdom work or our own comforts, ease, luxuries and leisure? In the Old Testament, the temple was God's dwelling place. But the temple is no longer needed. There are no special buildings or places anymore. This church building is a great blessing. It's useful. It keeps us warm and dry whilst we're meeting and listening to God's word. Many of us have special memories of this place or made in this place. And yet, this is not a special building. It's not a holy building. It's not sacred. There are no special buildings or places in the New Testament. Because in the New Testament, the church is God's dwelling place. And of course, by the church, I'm talking about the people of God, not the building. So the New Testament equivalent of neglecting the temple is to neglect the church. The New Testament equivalent of building the temple is building the church. 
both deepening the church in our understanding and our love of the Lord and so on, and in widening the church in our evangelism. So to build the temple in New Testament terms is to obey the Great Commission. It's to make disciples of all the nations. It's to baptize and to teach them to obey everything the Lord has commanded. This is the building work in which we should be engaged as New Testament Christians. So to return to that question, what are the priorities of our time, the priorities of our spending? Are our priorities our home projects or interior design? Or our cars or our foreign holidays or our leisure pursuits or, or for some of us, the food we enjoy? Or are our priorities world mission, evangelism, service in the church, service to the church, sacrificial giving, fellowship, and so on. As I said earlier, it's not necessarily wrong to have and enjoy homes or any good material thing. There is a time for feasting, for relaxing, for enjoying God's gifts with thanksgiving. But the problems, problems come when we as God's people constantly prioritize these things over the Lord's pleasure and the Lord's glory over His kingdom work. And on top of that, what do these things reveal about our own hearts? What level of concern do we have for God's pleasure and for God's glory? What's my greatest desire? What's your greatest desire? Is it to bring God pleasure? Is it to, to see our God glorified, to see Him honored? Although we wouldn't necessarily put it this way, is our greatest desire to bring me pleasure and to see me glorified a little bit of a made-up scenario for the final day when we stood before the Lord we, we come into the presence of the Lord and he says well done good and faithful servant you achieved it all a five-bedroom detached house with a swimming pool a second home three foreign holidays per year three cars on the drive a yacht and a big pension pot enter into the joy of the Lord well, I trust that's not the way it's going to be because the Lord is going to bring his commendation to those who have prioritized God's glory and God's pleasure over their own glory and their own pleasure. So if Haggai stood amongst us today, what would he say? What would he say of our priorities as individuals, as families, as a church, as British Christians? What would Haggai say? What would the Lord say through Haggai. Retired pastor Michael Bentley writes, Do we have a vision for the presence and glory of God among us? Do we want His glory to be displayed in the neighborhood where we work and witness for God? Let us smash our lethargic spirit into smithereens and rise up to build for God's glory. So we've seen the setting, the sin, number three, the sentence. What then was the consequence of their sin? What was the result of the sin of the people of Jerusalem? How did the Lord deal with these people? Well, we see this in verses 5 through to 11. I'll read it again. Now, this is what the Lord Almighty says. Give careful thought to your ways. 
You have planted much, but harvested little. You eat, but never have enough. You drink, but never have your fill. You put on clothes, but are not warm. You earn wages only to put them in a purse with holes in it. This is what the Lord Almighty says. Give careful thought to your ways. Go up into the mountains and bring down timber and build my house so that I may take pleasure in it and be honored, says the Lord. You expected much, but see, it turned out to be little. What brought you home? Sorry, what you brought home, I blew away. Why, declares the Lord Almighty, because of my house, which remains a ruin, while each of you is busy with your own house. Therefore, because of you, the heavens have withheld their dew and the earth its crops. I called for a drought on the fields and the mountains, on the grain, the new wine, the olive oil, and everything else the ground produces on people and livestock and on all the labor of your hands. So to summarize, the Lord was bringing frustration upon Jerusalem as a result of their sin. Economic frustration, agricultural frustration. Times were economically hard. They were hard because of the displeasure of the Lord and the consequence of that. Agriculture was unproductive. It was unproductive because of the pleasure of the Lord, displeasure of the Lord. Despite their toil, life was unsatisfying, it was unfulfilling, and it was frustrating. One verse I find really interesting uh, in these times, verse 6. The Lord says there, you earn wages only to put them in a purse with holes in it. It seems that money was losing its value. Inflation was on the rise. Ring any bells. When inflation hits a nation, let me suggest this evening, it's not just economic questions that need to be asked. We need to ask spiritual questions too. I don't suppose Jeremy Hunt is watching online, but if he were, I might say something like this. Maybe that you should consider that the most effective remedy for the UK's inflation might be nationwide repentance. Why should a nation who has collectively turned its back on the Lord expect economic blessing from him? There is a greater crisis in our nation at the moment than a cost of living crisis, as difficult and real as that may be. There is a dishonoring and displeasing the Lord crisis. And our greatest need as a nation is for repentance, not for government spending or spending cuts or tax cuts or tax rises or interest rate rises. The greatest need of our nation is for repentance and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Perhaps the Lord is currently dealing with us as a nation as he dealt with his people back in Haggai's day. Must be careful. We have no revelation in God's word to that extent. But it's something worth considering. The economic difficulties that we're going through. What might the Lord be doing in them? Perhaps we're being spurred on to preach repentance and faith. Repentance to this increasingly wicked, godless and senseless generation. Back in uh, Haggai's day, the Jews shouldn't have been, been surprised at any of their hardships. 
the covenant with Moses, the Mosaic covenant, clearly states that God's Old Testament people would be blessed when they obeyed God and that they would be cursed for disobedience. We learn more about that in Deuteronomy chapter 28. God's Old Testament people were warned that they would face agricultural and economic ruin if they sinned against the Lord. And so the Lord's sentence upon Jerusalem, it wasn't just deserved, it had been promised by the Lord. Jerusalem's economic frustration, agricultural frustration, these were entirely in line with God's word. Our God is a God who always keeps his promises. And that's not always good news for everyone. You see, the people of Jerusalem were receiving their just desserts for their indifference and apathy towards their God. Well, that's all very well, you might say. That was true in the Old Testament. What relevance does that have for us as New Testament believers? After all, we're not under the Mosaic Covenant. We might suggest that the Lord Jesus Christ received all the covenant curses on our behalf on the cross. And that would be true. He has. Has not the Lord Jesus, by his obedience, earned covenant blessings for us? And we would say yes and amen to that. And yet, can I suggest tonight that God still blesses his people for their obedience to him. And he still disciplines his people when they disobey him. Our Lord requires zeal from his people. He required it then, he requires it now. Romans 12 verse 11 says, Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor serving the Lord. This wasn't a suggestion from the Apostle Paul, just in case we needed something to mull over on a Sunday night. This was a command from the Apostle. Never be lacking in zeal. But keep your spiritual fervor serving the Lord. When we're spiritually apathetic, like the people were in Haggai's day, we are being disobedient to the Lord. Our spiritual apathy, to put it another way, is a sin for which the Lord Jesus Christ had to die. Spiritual apathy dishonors our God. One Bible commentator says this, One of the reasons why Haggai seems less colourful and dramatic than earlier prophets is the nature of the sin he is condemning. There are no colourful denunciations of bogus religion and social injustice, as in Amos. No powerful condemnations of idolatry, as in Isaiah and Jeremiah. Not the passionate appeals of Hosea. Rather, what Haggai faces is a complacent apathy which manifests itself in a chilling indifference to the Lord. When we're apathetic in our Christian lives, the Lord often uses trials and temptations to discipline us, to stir us, to shake us up. We sang about that in one of the songs earlier on, and I meant to write it down, didn't write it down. The Lord draws us close to himself, brings us to himself through our trials so often. The Lord uses the warnings of Scripture to shake us up, to change our priorities. And this is what the Lord is doing in Haggai. He's using his word through Haggai, using circumstances to lead the people to repent of their apathy. 
Just give one example of this kind of warning in the New Testament in case you think it's not relevant to us as New Testament Christians. In Revelation 3, the Lord says to the church in Laodicea that they're spiritually apathetic. In effect, he says, that makes him feel sick. And the Lord warns them that if they persist in their apathy, he's going to spit them out. He's going to remove his blessing from them. He's going to disassociate himself from their local church. He's going to remove his presence from them. And the Lord says there that he is disciplining them because he loves them. Nevertheless, they need to repent of their lukewarmness. And that's a challenge for us tonight, isn't it? Are we, am I, spiritually apathetic? Are we lukewarm corporately as a church? Maybe are we lukewarm individually? Is the Lord using circumstances to, to stir us, shake us up, and in His kindness lead us to repent of our spiritual apathy the Lord warns us the Lord loves us as his people too much to allow us to coast spiritually for too long the Lord wants what's best for us and most glorifying to himself he knows that we'll only have real satisfaction in life when we prioritize Christ and his kingdom and he will use his word to bring us to repentance and he will sometimes use circumstances to bring us to repentance. The Lord says to us this evening, just as Haggai said back then, give careful thought to your ways. Those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. So be earnest and repent. Here I am, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person and they with me. When we repent of our coldness, seek the Lord's forgiveness, the Lord Jesus promises rich fellowship to his people, to those who turn to Christ from our apathy, from our lukewarmness. In a similar vein to earlier on, could I tentatively suggest that the state of the church in our nation may be God's judgment upon us as a lukewarm, disobedient and apathetic people. Perhaps sometimes even the challenges that we face as a local church are part of the Lord's gracious hand of discipline for our apathy, our indifference, or even our disobedience. Yes, we've got many, many blessings for which we can and should give thanks as God's people, as a local church. Faithful preaching, God-honoring worship, biblical leadership, evangelistic ministries, Christian love, young people, so many blessings for which we need to give thanks. But we also need to ask of ourselves, are we generally, are we corporately, a church marked by fervent prayer, heartfelt worship, and a desire to come to listen and treasure and live out God's word? Are our prayers mar marked by what we might call a holy dissatisfaction? at our spiritual state? Are our prayers marked by a desire for the Lord to work in us, to show us more of Christ, to deepen our love and zeal for Him and His glory? We need to give these matters careful thought. Number three, the sentence, but number four, the solution. Number four, the solution. 
What was the solution to the predicament of the people of Jerusalem? Well, from a human perspective, the solution was repentance, turning from apathy to renewed obedience. And the people did repent, and they repented in response to God's word through Haggai. Verse 12, Then Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, Joshua, son of Josadak, the high priest, and the whole remnant of the people obeyed the voice of the Lord their God and the message of the prophet Haggai because the Lord their God had sent him and the people feared the Lord. In response to Haggai's message, the people obeyed the Lord. They did what he said. They restarted the work on the house of the Lord. We see that in verse 14. They obeyed. And they also feared the Lord. What we mean by that, what God's word means by that, is that they once more held the Lord with the honour, the respect, the reverence, the awe which he was due. It's when we fear the Lord that we live lives which are pleasing and glorifying to him. And so the challenge for me and for you this evening is, do we need to recommit ourselves to obedience to the Lord? As New Testament believers, we have been given the Holy Spirit. We have the Holy Spirit to help us to love the Lord's commandments and to help us to obey them. Let's ask the Lord to help us this evening to fear God, to keep his commandments. And not just to keep them, but to love them as well. We aren't simply aiming for outward obedience to Christ We want the Spirit to lead us towards inward conformity to the character of Christ. We want to be like Jesus. We want to obey Him from the heart. We want our commitment, we want our ministries to flow from a desire to please God and to glorify Him. But finally, let's look at the solution to this problem from the divine perspective. Haggai brought the warning from the Lord, but the people received two other things as well. First of all, in verse 13, they received an encouraging reminder from the Lord. Look at verse 13. Then Haggai, the Lord's messenger, gave this message of the Lord to the people. I am with you, declares the Lord. The Lord reminded the people in Jerusalem that he was with His people. Now, if anything is going to motivate me and you to live faithful, courageous, and obedient Christian lives, it's going to be this the truth that our God is with us. You see, the presence of the Lord, the blessing of the Lord, that would, they would spur the Jews on to renewed obedience, to repent of their apathy, to complete the temple with renewed courage and strength. The God of Israel was still with his people. The God who had brought Israel out of Egypt. The God who had delivered the promised land to them. The God who had built the Davidic kingdom. The God who on one occasion had saved Jerusalem from the king of Assyria. Killing 185,000 men. God's enemies in the process. This God was still their God. He was with them to bless them and to encourage them, to fight for them, to supply their needs, if only they would turn to him 
and depend on him. Let me, let me remind us this evening. Our God is our creator and sustainer. Our God is our provider. He's our defender. He is our rock. He is the father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He is our savior. And individually and corporately, we are assured that he is with us. Our God is with us, with his people, in the form of his Son. Emmanuel, God with us. We're going to be thinking more about that over the coming weeks, I'm sure. Our Lord Jesus Christ, he's the King of kings and the Lord of lords. He has been given all authority in heaven and on earth. He reigns over all creation. He is placing his enemies under his feet. And our God, our Lord, is with us. And our Lord was with us when he gave himself for us on the cross. When the Lord Jesus Christ put himself in our place so that we might be forgiven, so that we might become the children of God. This is the God who is with each and every one of us as his people this evening. And on top of that, our God is with us by His Spirit. He's living inside us individually and corporately as His people. He's living inside us to empower us, to obey, to love, to seek God's glory above all else. The great remedy that we need for our indifference, our apathy, our fear, is to remember who God is. To remember what He has done for us in the Lord Jesus Christ, and to remember that He is with us. And then second, very finally, which doesn't make any sense, but there we are, very finally. The second divine blessing that the people received was this. They were stirred by the Lord. Verse 14. So the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, son of Josadak, the high priest, and the spirit of the whole remnant of the people. The Lord stirred up the people so they would, they would renew their commitment to him and his work. Isn't this what we are desperately in need of this evening? Isn't this what we ultimately need to turn us away from spiritual apathy to spiritual zeal? Isn't this stirring of the Lord what we need to give us greater concern for the pleasure and glory of the Lord? We need the Lord to stir us up. We need what's been termed historically revival. We need a special work of God amongst us as his people, to stir us, to give us greater zeal for his glory. When I studied in Wales, I felt that um, faithful Welsh Christians, all they ever prayed about was revival. And I thought, well, there are other day-to-day -day concerns. Can we just leave this revival bit aside a little while? Just pray for sort of more earthly, everyday matters. And I think sometimes I may have had a point but actually, wouldn't we rather be in that direction than in our coldness and in our lack of zeal, rarely, if ever, pray that the Lord would stir us that way? 
because that is our great need for the Holy Spirit to stir us and give us greater desires for God and for his glory. Greater desires to know more of Christ and him crucified. Greater desires to see our God glorified through the salvation of sinners and the building up of the church. We need revival as individual Christians. We need it as a local church. We need it as the church nationally as well. Isn't this the kind of people that we want to be? Isn't this the kind of church that we want to be? We want to be people consumed by the glory of God. We want to be a church consumed by the desire to see our God glorified in our lives and in our town and in the salvation of the lost. We want to be consumed by the desire to please the one who loves us and gave himself for us. So my final plea is that we pray and pray and pray. Pray that the Lord would cause us to repent of our spiritual apathy. Pray that we would seek his forgiveness. Pray that we would seek his strength to recommit ourselves to the Lord. Let's pray this evening that the Lord would use us to bring himself greater pleasure and greater glory. Let's pray that the Holy Spirit, Holy Spirit would reorder my priorities and your priorities to be more in line with the priorities of God's Word. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for the clarity of your Word. And Father, we recognize that to some degree in all of us this evening, there is spiritual apathy. Father, we ask that you would forgive us for this. And we pray that you give us your Holy Spirit in greater measure. That he might give us ever greater affection for the Lord Jesus Christ. And an ever greater zeal to see Christ glorified. Father, we thank you for the wonderful truths that you've reminded us of us um, of tonight, that you are always with us, that you as our God are the God who is always with his people. We thank you for that. We thank you for your, the presence of your Holy Spirit in and amongst us this evening. Father, we thank you for every spiritual blessing that's ours in Christ. We thank you for all the blessings we enjoy as your people and as a church. And yet, Father, still we would like to know more of Christ. And so we pray that you'd work in us these things, that we would be pleasing to you, that we would bring you honor and glory. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.